0: Welcome to Grey Area, a show about justice and redemption. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez. So far this season, our stories have centered mostly around criminal justice, people caught up in violence, courts, and prison. But in this episode, we want to explore how the law intersects with what can be the most intimate and difficult decision a person ever makes, if they get the chance, choosing how to die. A caution to our listeners, this episode deals extensively with death, from natural causes and by choice. If you've been contemplating this stuff, please remember the people at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline are great, and they're ready to talk anytime in Spanish and English. Their number is 1-800-273-8255. We'll have more in the show notes. Death is likely the most difficult thing we will all face sooner or later. But mourning the death of a loved one can be harder still when they've decided to die. And then there's coming to terms with the fact that you supported this choice and everything that implies. I spoke to Vali Barrios. She's the wife of Reynaldo in Episode 3. She told me about her mother, Arlene, who chose to end her life in 2003 after she was diagnosed with a severe form of multiple sclerosis. In California at the time, it was illegal for anyone to help her do it. Around that time, Oregon had become the first state in the nation to decriminalize such an act. The infamous Dr. Jack Kevorkian had made headlines when he was convicted of second-degree murder for, quote, euthanizing his patients. But Arlene's decision wasn't in reaction to those events. Pushing boundaries was always in her wheelhouse.
1: She was always a rebel. If anybody told her she couldn't do something, that was what she was gonna do. One of her favorite stories was somebody told her, oh, girls don't climb trees, it's not ladylike. And so one of her favorite activities in her life was to climb trees. The higher, the better, the bigger tree, the better. Like she'd see a tree and she'd pull over and say, let's go climb that tree. And she was so cussedly independent which was, like, that was a catchphrase that we called her. Like, that was her name. Cussedly independent. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and um, so you didn't argue with her. If that was what Mama was going to do, that was what she was going to do. And so you didn't argue with it. Arlene
0: dedicated her career to teaching disabled adults. After decades of odd neurological symptoms, she was finally diagnosed with an aggressive form of multiple sclerosis. She retired and moved in with Valley when she could no longer live alone. But Arlene had already made clear that she didn't want to live with serious disabilities.
1: When I was young, she, like, really young, like 10, everybody was sitting around having dinner, and I don't know how we got on this subject, but I remember her saying, you know, if I ever become a vegetable, I just want that to be the end. I'm just going to... Call it a good day to die and go out on a, a wilderness truck and just, that'll be it. And I remember being really taken aback by that at the time. But that's so the kernel of who she was. She really believed that and felt that. And and another thing that really stays with me from my childhood is this one movie, Little Big Man. Um.
0: If you haven't seen it, Dustin Hoffman's title character is raised by the Cheyenne in the late 1800s. His adoptive father figure, played by Chief Dan George, has decided to end his life because, quote, there is no other way to deal with the white man. From a mountaintop, he shouts his intentions to the void.
2: Come out and fight. It is a good day to die. I am going to die now, unless death wants to fight. And I ask you for the last time to grant me my old power to make things happen.
1: She loved that idea that there could just be a good day to die.
0: And what did you think of that?
1: Well, it was all very romantic and esoteric at the time, and I'm sure it shaped my feelings and thoughts and beliefs about the whole issue, but I never really thought I'd have to face it. At what point did it become real? (laughs) Well, about a year before it happened, she sat us down me first because I was around and she gave me these books to read and these books were written by people who had gone through this issue and their parents had died and and she had me read those and then we talked about it and she said you know this is what I want to do and it was still a little bit esoteric and abstract at that point and I still felt like whatever you want mom I understand if this is what you want I'll support you And then about a year later, she had moved in with me by this point and she was getting less able as time went on. And she was always active as a bumblebee and she was always building. We used to call her the Winchester Lady because she always felt like she had to be building something. And so she was outside building this patio out there and I went out to be with her and help her and she said you know I think this is my last summer I think that I'll probably go in the fall and it was like the floor dropped out from under me and it made it very real
0: and did she do that?
1: No she kept putting it off for a while I guess people told her you know, you really don't want to do this to your kids around the holidays because it will pretty much ruin the holidays for them forever. <sighs> and so she, at some point months later, said to me, I've decided to wait until after the holidays.
0: For you guys?
1: For us. And I felt like, how could you not want to watch your... your beloved grandchildren graduate from high school and to be at my wedding and things like that. But on the other hand, she was so determined and so fiery about it and God forbid I should ever cross her against her wishes. And so I felt like I couldn't really say anything. I couldn't like, my biggest regret of my life is that I didn't say no. Don't do it! And I never did because I knew it would piss her off. Mm-hmm. So why do you regret it? Because I just wish I'd said it. Just to say it. Just to be honest. And yeah. Real. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah.
0: So you were keeping a brave front for... um Yeah. It's a lot to ask of your daughter. <laughs> yeah.
1: Not really. Not a, I didn't ever feel that way because she did so much for me. So you felt
0: good about doing that for her, even though you. Were not
1: good, about? but I felt like I would do anything for her, and if this was what she wanted, I had to do it. Yeah.
0: Did she articulate to you what? Why she wanted to do this? I mean, if, if MS isn't a fatal disease, what was it that was intolerable to
1: her? It is eventually fatal. I mean, eventually the muscles of your lungs and heart just stop working. But it takes a good 10 to 15 years. And that's a lot of suffering. And she had always been really clear that she just didn't want to live a life in which she couldn't ride a bike, couldn't climb trees couldn't sew, couldn't sing, do the things she loved. So um, the reason that she wanted to go was because she couldn't do that. And the main thing is that MS is so unpredictable. And what she always said was, I could wake up tomorrow and not be able to move my hands. And at that point, I will not be able to do this myself, this being the final deed. And she was adamant that she wouldn't ask any of us to do that to her. And she didn't want to get us into any kind of legal trouble, for one thing. And for another thing, she knew the emotional toll that it would have taken to be the one to do that to your mother. And so she was determined to do it while she could still do it herself. And since she didn't know from day to day how many days she had left, she felt like she had to do it while she was still able. And that was the hardest part. For all of us around her, we felt like this was way too soon. And so I basically just let her commit suicide in front of me. so hard to just let your mother do that. <laughs> I don't know how I would feel in the same situation, but she was clear and she was adamant. And part of me feels pissed at her for robbing me of the opportunity to rise to the occasion and be a great daughter to her and do all that for her. This really A horrible part of me is grateful to her for saving me from that. Which makes me feel utterly guilty and horrible and a failure as a daughter. I know she didn't intend that. I know she wanted to save me. Pain and misery and I don't think either of us knew what it was going to do to me. I wish I'd told her to wait. (laughs) that it'd be okay, that I'd take care of her, that it, it's not the worst thing in the world to be disabled, that just to have more time with her than that. But one of the first things she said when she got diagnosed with MS was, I am not going to be in a wheelchair. And when we were building this house for her to move into it, She refused to put in grab bars and wheelchair ramps. She refused because she said, I'm not going to do that. And so part of me knows that no matter what I said, it wasn't going to change anything. And that I just had to be there for her and be as supportive as I could to help her through it. And she was so crystal clear that she would give her life over to helping anybody else to attain whatever peace and ability she could in their state of ability or disability but for her she wanted her life the way she had lived it or it wasn't worth living to her and that was okay with her and she wanted it to be okay with all of us it wasn't but it was because it was her choice
0: Arlene died quickly and peacefully at home, lovingly surrounded by family and close friends. Her final wish was to donate her body to science to help researchers studying MS. She also wanted to spare her family any hardship she could, choosing to end her life on a Friday so her grandsons wouldn't have to miss school the next day. But no one realized that because her death was technically a suicide, the coroner would be required to do an autopsy and the coroner doesn't work weekends. The delay meant Arlene's final wish to donate her body to science could not be fulfilled. In addition, Valley was questioned afterwards by a sheriff's deputy who was sniffing around to make sure this wasn't a murder case. If this had all been a legal process, would it have made it any easier?
1: I think so. The whole underground, slightly illegal aspect of it was a whole extra trauma. Otherwise, it was a beautiful day to die. (laughs)
3: And
1: she had the right. She had the right to end it that way, as, as hard as it was. She had that right. You know, it messed me up, it messed my brother up, messed our relationship with each other up. But she still had that right, and I guess if we had it all to do over again, I might make sure I said to her, I'm willing to take care of you as disabled as you are. I wouldn't make sure I got that in, but I'd still support her decision.
0: In the US, we talk a lot about our right to live freely. It's baked into our Constitution, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But only six states currently have laws protecting your freedom to die. I spoke with California State Senator Bill Monning, a co-author of California's End of Life Option Act, which went into effect in June 2016.
2: I come down on the side of seeing this as a fundamental human right, the autonomy of a patient, to determine his or her end-of-life choices, one of which might be having the option of taking a life-ending medication. But what we found is many people who have qualified for the prescription don't end up using it. It provides them peace of mind that's hard to quantify.
0: It turns out the legislation was inspired in part by Brittany Maynard. Her story dominated headlines in 2014 when at 29 she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer and made the difficult, costly, and ultimately very public decision to move from California to Oregon to legally exercise her right to die. Monning crafted the bill shortly before death. After four similar bills had been defeated, he braced himself for a drawn-out legislative battle.
2: Her mother described that when she got the prescription, Brittany Maynard It lifted a burden off her shoulders. She knew that she had the means not to suffer. She said, nobody takes this because they want to die. Suicide is not the right word. Suicide is deemed by the American Psychiatric Association as an irrational act. Brittany Maynard and others have said, I don't want to die. I want to live. I don't have that choice. I am going to die. I am dying because of this terminal illness. Within that death path, that is inevitable. I want the ability to control the terms of that death so I can avoid pain and suffering. And as she started suffering seizures, she chose her time. She spoke to Governor Brown a week before she took the medication, had 10 minutes to talk to Governor Brown, urging him to support our legislation. They spoke for an hour. Her husband described her as being very fatigued, but the governor was curious. He didn't make any commitments to her we hadn't passed our legislation he said I can't commit to something I haven't seen but we think that conversation was part of moving the governor to a place of being supportive and then her family describes the scene around her bed her mother her husband other family members holding hands crying laughing and she ingests the medication and a cocktail that she drank and In our law, you have to be able to self-administer, which raises other questions about people who can't do that. But it was a peaceful, compassionate, loving transition, and her surviving family members carry an image of her basically going to sleep after having shared expressions of love for each other.
0: Opponents of the law came mainly from medical, religious, and disability rights communities. They were concerned about the moral and ethical implications of endorsing or facilitating someone's choice to end their life, and the messages that such laws could send. Disability rights advocates feared that the perceived loss of dignity that can come with illness has become accepted as a reasonable justification for ending your life. And it's true, the primary end-of-life concerns that patients have reported have more to do with emotional suffering than physical. Patients cite their loss of autonomy, dignity and ability, and fears of being a burden to others as their main reasons for considering the option. Physical pain and financial concerns are way at the bottom of the list. But exercising the California End-of-Life Option Act would not be just a matter of being physically impaired or fearing a perceived loss of dignity. You would also have to be terminally ill.
2: We think the protections in the law protect Californians and that the particular concerns of somebody with a disability uh, nobody can do it on their behalf they have to meet with two different physicians and it's not good cause that you're um, frustrated with your disability but let's remember people with disabilities can also acquire a terminal illness they can acquire a terminal cancer and they shouldn't be denied the right to consider an end-of-life option if that's their will and volition. And the protections in the bill protect a disabled person just as they protect a non-disabled person, but I flip the coin and say those in the disabled community should be able to access a law that anybody else can access should they have a terminal illness. This is fundamentally rooted in the autonomy of the patient and their sound decision-making ability.
0: The California Medical Association has long opposed such laws and it blocked similar legislative efforts in the 1990s. But in 2015, it became the first state medical association in the nation to switch its position from against to neutral. The phrase physician-assisted suicide became aid in dying They recognized the issue as a personal choice to be decided by a patient and their physician on a case-by-case basis. The fact that the End-of-Life Option Act would decriminalize the actions of anyone who participated in good faith was a key factor in the association's decision.
2: We hit a lot of obstacles. We had members who had strong religious opposition. We weren't going to try to change their mind. We respected people's moral views on this. Again, this isn't being forced on anybody, but the champions of this effort were the terminally ill patients who traveled to Sacramento at their own expense, knew that they were dying, knew they would not be a beneficiary of this law because of the time it would take to become operational, and did this to protect people in the future from not enduring the uncertainty that they faced. One was a woman from Los Angeles, Christy O'Donnell, uh, LAPD sergeant for about 15 years, a single mother of one. She went to night Law School when she was a sergeant. One night she was reading in bed and her pages were blurred. She went to her optometrist, thought she needed to get her glasses upgraded. He ran exams, your eyes are fine, sent her to a neurologist. She had a brain tumor. He gave her less than a year to live, and she spent that final year of her life as an advocate, and she chose not to move to Oregon because she felt she wanted to be at her home with her daughter and friends. But she testified several times in Sacramento. When we finally got the bill to the assembly, we keep scorecards. We, we knew we were close. We needed 41 votes. We probably had... 30 to 35 strong yeses, and then unknowns, maybes, 35 to 41. We we needed to find six. There was a legislator from Los Angeles who had raised concerns. He said, you know, I'm just not there. So that day of the vote, I get a text from Christy O'Donnell. She says, I'm so sorry I can't travel anymore. I won't be able to be up there. I feel so helpless. Is there anything I can do from here? and she'd done so much already testifying to committees and she met with the governor's staff and i said well i think you know i think we're close i think we're going to be there you've done so much i said but there is this member in la we're not counting on getting his vote but if you can do any magic with his office you know try it so the arguments are passionate on the assembly floor strong proponents some strong opposition and this member puts up his microphone Starts raising all of his concerns, but then he says, but. And whenever you hear but on those floor speeches, you perk up. What's coming now? And he says, but I'm going to support it today. Because like the governor later said, I don't think somebody should be denied the right to consider this option. Our first vote, 42 votes went up. We got it on the first vote, and then members added on who had stayed off. But he was one of the yes votes. So I texted Christy, or I phoned her. I said, what happened? He went up on the vote. And she said, I know I'm watching it here on the Cal Channel. She said, I'm crying. I can't believe it. We we did it. We did it. And I said, yeah, but how did you move this member? She said, well, I don't know, but I understand that 400 LAPD officers phoned his LA office this morning. Officer down. They probably didn't even know what the bill was about, but the call went out that one of their former colleagues was facing this terminal illness, and she was asking for their support, and I'm sure that was instrumental. We didn't know what Governor Brown would do. His Jesuit background, his Catholic background, his staff had no clues. The final weekend to sign our bill after we had passed it, his staff sent him home to work on his decision and his signing statement, and he didn't come back the next day. He was phoning people. He was talking to members of the clergy, to physicians, to others. He got a letter from Desmond Tutu. His letter is beautifully written. He said, my God is a compassionate God, and I support an end-of-life option. I believe in compassion for a dying patient, and I hope you will extend that right to Californians. Governor Brown references that letter in his signing statement, which ended up being less than a page, but he cites... Bishop Tutu, he cites talking to physicians, and he says, I don't know what I would do myself, but I don't believe I should prevent anybody from having this option if they're a terminally ill patient. And so he signed the law and went into effect. It was a huge victory, I believe, for California.
0: Warren Church was the son of a popcorn farmer and a longtime politician in California's Central Coast. His self administered death in 2017 was among the first to happen legally under Bill Monning's End of Life Option Act. Church was a Korea War veteran and a Christmas tree farmer. He became a county supervisor who helped preserve what would become the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. By his late 80s, Warren's health was rapidly deteriorating. I spoke to Warren's son, Glenn Church, who today runs the family Christmas tree farm. Glenn's wife, Kathy McKenzie, a reporter with Voices of Monterey Bay, also joined us.
3: The thing is, he always, all through the time I was growing up, he was very much a believer in that people would, if if they weren't in... You know, in good health, at later in life, that they should have a right to choose how they want to live their life or how they want to die. And he he always told me, he says, you know, I, I don't want to end up bedridden. You know, if I get down where I can't go out and do things, I can't move, do things anymore. I don't really, I don't really want to continue on. And this is what he was telling me, and we talk about it. You know, probably said you know before I was a teenager
4: he had no second thoughts at all it was absolutely what he wanted to do he was um he was actually really really happy that he was you know not going to be a burden to to people you know he he was 87 he was almost 88 and i think he just had made up his mind that this is the way that he wanted to do it and so Um, I I have to tell you, it's one of the weirdest things in the world to help somebody plan their death. It's really strange. I mean, we would be in the midst of filling out paperwork or making calls or whatever, and all of a sudden you would go, oh, this is so that Warren can die. (laughs) And, And that was just the strangest thing, you know. But on the other hand, I knew this is what he wanted, and And so we had to, we had to carry out his wishes, you know, we, I mean, I suppose we could have gone against it, but um, just knowing how, how much he wanted it, um, it it was just impossible to, to do anything else.
3: So it was actually just sort of fortunate in a way for him and his beliefs that, that this law for allowing the the right to die in California would would come into effect a year before he would really reach a point where, where, where he really felt he couldn't go on.
0: In an effort to hasten the end of his life, Warren even stopped eating and drinking. But then Glenn confirmed that Warren was eligible under California's newly passed End of Life Option Act. Still, they had a checklist. They'd need a physician who would write the prescription, and a pharmacist willing and able to fill it. And then there was the cost. State funding is available to all Medi-Cal-eligible patients, low-income patients. But private insurance is another story.
3: Insurance doesn't cover it. And i got to say, the most disappointing thing about this law is the enormous cost of the medicine.
4: So we had to pay out-of-pocket $3,800 for the second all. And the cost can actually be as much as $5,000 is what I, you know, found when I was researching this. Glenn was adamant
0: about supporting his father's decision. One reason was a painful experience when his mother died in a rest home just a few years earlier. Together, they'd signed an advance directive indicating that in the event she could not voice her own opinion, she did not want any extreme measures taken to extend her life unnaturally. Despite this, Glenn felt pressured to give staff permission to insert a feeding tube when his mother stopped eating on her own.
3: And I said, yes, but if you don't do something here, she will die. And I go, this isn't what my mother wants. You know, I'm, I'm doing what, what she wanted, what, she, what we agreed on. This isn't, this isn't what she wants. And, you know, and they're basically emphasizing again, well, well, she's going to die if you don't do something. And I'm thinking to myself, at this point, I, I'm getting kind of disgusted because I'm thinking I'm trying to uphold my mother's wishes and they're trying to put pressure on me to consent to something that she didn't want, which I'm sure they, they must do to other people. It isn't giving you dignity. It isn't giving you quality of life. It isn't even respecting somebody's beliefs and how they want to live or how they want to die. It's, it's like, well, we want to just keep a, a warm body in a bed so we can get money coming in. And when I refused to agree to this, all these people have put these frowns on their faces. And I'm not going to have people who know nothing about my mother, really, trying to bully me into doing something that she didn't want. So this was also on my mind as things were going on with my dad. I wasn't going to put him through with this either. And it's like I wanted to respect what my mom wanted and what, she, what the law was allowed at that time. I had to respect her, you know, the things for my dad.
0: In anticipation of his final day, Warren stopped taking all his medications and started eating lots of pie and ice cream. He took his son and grandsons on a tour of the local
4: parks that he'd helped open. Neighbors and family came to say goodbye. So here's this morning. It's very hot. It's very still. Everybody's sort of gathering because they know this is this is the end. The doctor was there. The hospice nurse was there. Uh, our neighbors... Um, Christopher Glenn's son and Glenn and I so there's just this incredible feeling of wow you know this is really happening it's you know and and gosh is it gonna is it gonna you know you know hopefully this is all gonna go the way that it's supposed to. Hi.
2: Hi
1: Hi. Lauren. Hello.
4: How are you
2: today?
1: Good how are you? Patient. (laughs) Aww
0: well I'm gonna miss you. (laughs)
2: Well, I'm How going. are you
0: feeling?
3: Both pretty good.
0: Good. Good. Any second thoughts or anything? No or? second thoughts. Okay. <laughs> Aww.
2: The next stop will be the crematorium. <laughs> yes.
3: Right. right. Although yes, for your body that's correct. Yes. <laughs> there, there may be some other stop uh, hereafter for you though, as a person.
4: Um, Doesn't believe that. Right, but, I, but I'm I know. I'm we, we maybe. Do, we, <laughs> right. uh, I, we do not right. know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Likewise with me. I, I'm hoping for a surprise for him. Yeah.
3: But if there is something on the other side, do you mind just, yeah. just sending a postcard or something? Or <laughs> <laughs> just try to let us know <laughs> if we're on the
2: right track? We yeah. only yeah. had and uh, man's years going. Right. And nothing has shown up yet.
4: Right. Fair enough. All right. I just wanna You might be the one cover our basis. Well, might be. <laughs> you are a groundbreaker. You know? yeah. <laughs> That's right. You're a public figure and maybe you'll be the one that'll give proof to us anyway. I know you want to go, but you have to
0: be sad that it's over too.
2: Well yes, no. Yeah. I was no use. No.
3: Corporal, Corporal, nice, it's nice um, Private. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, it's uh, it's mission accomplished. You you had a you had a great life. You created parks for people and took actions that kept this area rural and kept it as an agricultural and tourist place, and not an industrial complex and you built up these places and you've done a lot. And we all want to do as much in our lives. <laughs> or half as much.
2: Thank you, everybody, for everything.
4: You're well, thanks for letting us be here. Thank you. Yes. We've done, tried to do our best. Boy, he's a trooper. <laughs>
3: We had one glass of orange juice with the the barbiturates mixed in, and we had another glass for him to kind of chase it down afterwards. And um, came over there and sat gathered around with my dad and um, gave him the uh, you know the glass of orange juice. He has, he has to do it all on his own too. And sitting up and and
2: this is it. I do it now. You can, but like they said, a
3: heads up, it does taste like medicine, just just like yeah. you don't want it to taste, that's how it tastes. Yeah. <laughs> so heads up. He um, took, a, t- took a drink of it and asked, her, is, that, is that too bitter for you? He goes, no, it's all right. And um, then he went and um, he drank the whole thing down. And I mean, even the doctor was kind of like, kind of surprised how bitter it was. It's not real bad. He's <laughs> he's amazing. He's, 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 he's so just stoic, you know. He's just uh, yeah. He think he's Ugh. gonna be awful, and he's like, nope, it's fine. I <laughs> I said, well, let, let, me, let me give you some more, some some good orange juice. To get this taste out of your your mouth. And I gave it to him, and and my dad started to, started drinking it, and he was kind of getting halfway down. And I think they was beginning to think. Well, he thinks he has to drink all this. And this is just orange juice. So I, I reached over to take the orange juice. And says, "Well, this is just orange juice. You don't have to drink <coughs> all of it." Bad enough. You don't have to drink all that. <coughs> There's nothing in that. It's just orange juice. As I reached, I reached over to get it. He pulled his, you know, he pulled it away from it, and he gave me this look. It's all right. Okay. It's good for you. <laughs> yeah. And everybody cracked up. Everybody cracked up. To me, that, in many ways, that epitomizes the difference between what happened with my mother, who was just, you know, was forced to suffer for months, for a year, for longer, and, and had no say so on how she was going to do her life. And my dad here, who was knew he was coming to end, but he was on his terms. Like everybody else, he wants to live life on his terms, and he lived life on his terms. But that also, you know, life also brings us to the door of death, and that you you wanted to be in control of that too.
0: On the federal level, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in 1997 that assisted suicide is not a constitutional right, leaving it up to the states to decide whether to allow or prohibit the practice since coming into effect, California's End of Life Option Act has been repeatedly challenged and upheld, and is now being reviewed by the state's Supreme Court. Legislators are drafting similar bills in at least a dozen other states, based on Oregon and California's models. And some advocates are already arguing that such laws don't go far enough to protect a person's right to die. Patients like Arlene, Bally's mom, would still not be eligible because they need a medical opinion that they're both likely to die within six months and are able to self-administer.
2: Canada's Supreme Court ruled that it shouldn't be regulated. This should be left between a patient and a doctor. And there's some advocates who feel our law is too restrictive because we're interfering with that doctor-patient relationship By prescribing certain steps that have to be taken by the patient and the doctor, you've got to check these boxes. It has to be reported and documented. But Canada's an interesting—they pursued a different path. Their Supreme Court said this is not unconstitutional. It's between a patient and their doctor.
0: It's kind of weird passing laws about how we're allowed to die, isn't it? I mean, it's not like you can prosecute the deceased for dying illegally. In reality, these laws are meant as much for the living as they are for the dying. They give us a structure, a checklist, and a name for the process. They give loved ones an avenue to safely and guiltlessly say, if this is your choice, we support you. They mean that final wishes can be honored. But mainly, these laws give terminally ill patients the opportunity to set their own threshold for their suffering. And if
4: they want to take that step, I say let them do it. I mean, I don't know if if I'm in a situation someday where um, where I'm terminally ill and I and I want to end it i I don't know if I would be courageous enough, honestly. There are good reasons to ask why
0: so many people reach the conclusion that their suffering is untenable and what we could do to prevent that. as we all know, health care isn't what it could and should be in this country particularly for the poor, for those living with chronic illness or disability, and especially with respect to mental health. Recently, my sister-in-law died of cancer in a state that, like 44 others, doesn't have laws allowing the end-of-life option. She chose to stop drinking and eating, and it took a long time, more than two weeks, for her to die that way. She told me if her state had a law like California's, she would have used it. But in the days before her death, we had some great talks, some laughs, visits with friends, and beautiful moments just sitting on her front porch. She didn't suffer much. The morphine took care of that. We never want the people we love to leave us, but we don't want them to suffer either. I think that what all of this teaches us is that no matter how we feel about it when someone's time comes, whenever and however, we have to let them go. In the end, those who've chosen to invoke this option, legally or otherwise, leave more than their life's legacy behind. They leave an invitation to all who knew and loved them to look at life a little differently.
1: We, you know, we had woken up in the morning (laughs) to this glorious of glorious days. The bees were just... (laughs) and the hummingbirds were just dancing and warring and and every flower was in bloom and you could smell it and it was like the very air was just vibrating with life it was amazing and there's never been another day like that like every spring I kind of look for it but there's never been that synchrony of bloom that there was that day and The birds and the hummingbirds and the bees, like all together, like all conspiring to make it the most alive day that could possibly happen on Earth. It just hasn't ever happened since then. I've watched for it. And it was just like, what a beautiful day to die. She called it, she picked it. It was a good day to die.
0: We have links about California and Oregon's End of Life Option Acts, the Supreme Court ruling in Canada, as well as suicide prevention contacts in our show notes at voicesofmontereybay.org slash gray area. That's gray with an A. The music for this episode is by Ketza, Blue Dot Sessions, David Hillowitz, Vortex, Maiden, and Lobo Local. I hope I pronounced those right. As always, thank you, Free Music Archive. For Gray Area, I'm Julie Reynolds-Martinez. My co-producer is Mara Reynolds, and this concludes Season 1. Thanks to everyone who's listened and shared their stories and reviews. If you haven't yet, please sign up for our newsletter. We'll share exclusive content, and we'll link to a brief survey where you can give us feedback and ideas while we plan Season 2. You can fill it out anonymously, But we've got some exciting new Gray Area swag, and we're going to draw prizes for people who submit the survey with their contact info. Follow us on social media at Gray Area Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and at Gray Area Audio on Twitter. More details plus all our previous episodes, show notes, a link to our survey, swag, and newsletter sign-up are on our website, grayareapodcast.com. And until Season 2, stay gray out there.